0: scary movies. Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk talk to me. Hi everybody. I'm George and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made according to our guest at least. And today's guest is an amazing artist whose work has been seen on Adventure Time in the New York Times, and he has some awesome collections of original work like Ant Colony and Birds of Maine. Please welcome Michael DeForge. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely my pleasure. Like I said, you're an amazing artist, and I've been really fascinated by talking to artists about their history with horror. Because I feel like a lot of artists do have this kind of fascination with it. And I'm really interested to hear sort of about your history with horror, where it started for you, if it's something that you frequently dip your toes into or more of a once in a while kind of thing.
1: Yeah, like ever since I was drawing comics maybe not my earliest ones because my earliest ones were me tracing like peanuts and the far side and stuff. But right. when I was like 11 or 12, a lot of the comics I was making were horror comics. And yeah, horror has just been a big influence on me like throughout my life. I think for a while, I even had a reputation as being a, a horror specialist in my comics, like in the first few years I was starting out because a lot of my early work was like very focused on body horror. Yeah. And then in the time since I, I think body horror is still like a recurring thing, it's still present in all of it, but it sort of shifted away into other genres, and I still dip my toes back into the genre, but it, it is more occasional now, but I, I still consume a lot of horror movies, and a lot of my... Biggest influences from both like movies and comics are horror, like a lot of horror manga like Katsuo Umezu or Hideshi Haino or Junji Ito and Charles Burns, like on the American side of things, or like contemporaries like Noel Freebird or Emily Carroll are all just like huge influences on, on my
0: writing. So when you're uh, writing and, and drawing, you know, you do, like you said, incorporate a lot of body horror. Is that your favorite subgenre to consume as well?
1: Um, It might. Be actually, even though the the movie that I chose, like it, you know, there are M night movies that do have body horror as an element, and the happening doesn't really in a in a really meaningful way. Right. But body horror, I come back to a lot. I think because all of the best body horror. It's not just horror, you know, like something terrible might be happening to you, but it's also like liberating or maybe it's like sexy in some way or, or exuberant or funny, which is how I feel about bodies. Like they're horrible, but they're also all of these other things. So I do think that's why body horror is, is one that like is pretty rich because yeah, like things that are terrifying can also be like liberating in some way.
0: Yeah, The joy of becoming. Exactly. Exactly. And as you mentioned, the movie we're talking about today is an M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Happening from 2008. Are you generally an M Night fan? I am.
1: I am. And I've been sort of happy to see in recent years that there has been like a bit of a a critical reappraisal of his movies because, you know, he he obviously like Sixth Sense wasn't his first movie, but like it, it did, you know, it was this early movie and he rode this high for a little while. And then I think critics and audiences kind of turned on him or turned him into a meme. And when I first saw the happening, like whenever it first came out in, I guess, 2008, I I think that was my reaction too, was like kind of enjoying it or sort of shrugging it off as just sort of a goofy movie and engaging it with it again, maybe like five or six years ago and M. Night in general, I was like, oh no, there's like actually a lot going on here and stuff that... I think he was maybe unfairly, like, memed away. And I think recently people are, are looping back into what he's doing. And, like, the, the reception for, like, Knock at the Cabin was, like, so positive because of that. I think people are have caught up to his wavelength, myself included.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I remember when this came out and everyone being like, oh, it's so funny but not on purpose. And, like, I think that people do M. Night such a disservice because he is so funny. And I think that a lot of it is incorporated on purpose, not just into this movie, but into his movies in general. And it's been really awesome for me to see that reappraisal as well, because I was thinking the other day that like, it's very cheap for me to like pick up the Blu-rays of these movies that nobody else (laughs) was a fan of, like Lady in the Water and The Happening. But I'm like, these are movies that I really enjoy. You know, Lady in the Water in particular gets uh, really crapped on as well. I think that one is really great. The Village is, I think, incredible. One of his best. And these are all movies that people were like, oh, they're terrible. Like, people really turned on him in a way that was visceral, as you mentioned. And The Happening does come at kind of an interesting time in Knight's career. It was the first movie where he didn't have final cut. And he'd been working with Disney and The Village kind of spooked them a little bit. And so they didn't want Lady in the Water. And so he made that at Warner Brothers, where he still had full control. And then that flopped even harder than The Village. So now he's having to work a little harder on pitches. He's actively shopping scripts around, trying to get some interest going. And the script that finally caught the attention of Fox was The Green Effect. And the script was actually even more grim than what we got. And so Fox told him they would buy it if he leaned into the tone and actually showed it, making it his first R-rated movie. But they also asked for some humor to be added. Like I said, I think M. Night is very funny, but it is something that people tend to bristle against in his movies. So I think it's kind of interesting that he was intending to make it a very dour film. And then the studio was like, no, you have to put in some comedy into this.
1: You need to add Mark Wahlberg talking to the <laughs> plastic plant. That's what's going to get this concept over for everybody.
0: That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> I think some of the stuff with humor and tone that people don't, that like that, yeah, did cause some of like the audiences to turn on him a little too. Or like, I was th- wondering if that was because, you know, even though The Sixth Sense was a horror movie, it did kind of like launch him into this very like prestigious, Oscary, like respectable film tradition right and i think his work is a lot like weirder and more idiosyncratic than that and some of the stuff with his like tonal shifts or some of the humor or some of the weirdness like things that people would would laugh at or assume wasn't intentional like lady in the water the guy with like the one really worked out arm (laughs)
0: that i think is the funniest thing i've ever seen
1: and like stuff like that if you saw it in either an art movie or even just another horror movie that you just took in as like, yeah, this is a horror movie in the tradition of horror movies. I'm expecting to get a lot of like weird idiosyncratic unsettling images. Some of them will be funny. Some of them will be upsetting. They would be just sort of read for what they are. And I think that people didn't really realize like, oh, this is a weird director. This isn't a guy who is interested in just like, you can imagine an alternate career arc where you make these like smash hits, like the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, and then maybe he goes on to, like, do a true crime Netflix series and stuff. You know, you can just imagine a different arc that sure. is, like, a more respectable arc. The Fincher. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it would have way less interesting choices and, like, detours and stuff than the arc M. Night took.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned that Wahlberg being cast, you know, he, he carries a lot of the humor of this movie, whether, you know, you view it as intentional or not. That was deliberate casting on Knight's part. He said that he felt Wahlberg had a buoyancy that would help combat the darkness in a way that paralleled Steve McQueen in The Blob. The Blob was a movie that Knight compared The Happening to many times, describing his intention to make the best B-movie you'll ever see and match the farcical tone of The Blob. Later on, though, looking back at the reception, he said that he felt he might have been a little inconsistent with that tone, and that's why people had difficulty seeing the humor. We see it, though, Knight.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think... Wahlberg's casting was one of the things that really like tips his hand in what he's doing because yeah I won't argue that he's the most magnetic charismatic screen presence in this movie but right. having this sort of meatheady guy like Mark Wahlberg who is supposed to be sort of a, a soft regular guy teacher that is clearly an intentional miscasting like that right. they're not supposed to line up that well and it does harken back to an era when there would be yeah like old science fiction movies and the person playing a professor would be this kind of lunkhead guy that you're not even convinced can read the script and like (laughs) i I think like that that was intentional that like mark Wahlberg wasn't supposed to seem like your actual science teacher i guess
0: yeah yeah yeah. it was a a classic example of form following function one of the other changes from the script was that it said very early on it is for sure the plants whereas this movie kind of strings out the mystery of what exactly is going on and then ultimately at the end doesn't really give a concrete answer everyone sort of accepts Yes, this was the plants, but the movie does not for sure say here is exactly what's happening and here's why it stopped and here's why it's starting again. Um, So I think that that's an interesting change. I like it to be a little more nebulous. I like that oftentimes night has people have to put in a little bit of work in order to fully comprehend the movies and what they're trying to say. And I think that this does uh, that is an improvement from from script to execution, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I even think like I I like the movie old a lot, but I think it's one big drawback was how much time they explain the old beach at the end and the logic of the old beach. And for a horror movie, I don't, I mean, that's just not something I care about.
0: right? (laughs) It's the beach that makes you old, not the beach that makes you logical. Exactly. Perfectly phrased.
1: I think too, you know, I I rewatched it again yesterday ahead of coming on here. And the thing that struck me were the parallels to, you know, like this obviously is like playing on climate change anxiety. And watching it yesterday, it made me specifically think about this editorial that the former president of the American Meteorological Society wrote for the New York Times in like 2016 or 2015 called A New Dark Age Looms that is basically about how a lot of our common wisdom about the world, like the directions that wind blows or where fish might spawn, migration patterns of birds are all totally up in the air right now because of climate change. And basically arguing that we might be entering a new dark age because a lot of our conventional wisdom that we rely on to like fly planes and not have them crash into things or be able to plan ahead for what crops we can farm and things like that, they're about to be rendered obsolete. And we just like don't know a lot of things we knew about the world. We don't know, including animals and stuff like birds falling from the sky. And then I was thinking about that where like the opening line of this movie is a lady saying, I forgot where I am. And the fact that they don't explain everything does actually talk about like, yeah, that's one of the big anxieties that you know, it's carried over, obviously, from like 2008, when we think about climate change, it's only gotten worse. And it's that the world around us is like becoming increasingly illegible. So I like that they don't get this clear answer, or here's how to fix it, here's how to go ahead and fix it. Like, at the end of the movie, you're not sure if they can fix it. Right.
0: I think that that ties perfectly into something that he said that I thought was a good thematic jumping off point from the special features on the Blu-rays. He said, they're not the victims in the story. They're the villains. And he doesn't need to have the movie explain exactly what's going on because the guilt is already in us. He just needs to touch it, he said. I thought that that was so spot on in terms of that climate anxiety in particular of like, And every moment you go outside, you're like, what are we doing to this planet? And and for him to sort of just allude to it in a way that is not hitting you over the head so strongly, I think, um, was really deft on his part.
1: Yeah, I I love that. And I, I do love how it, you know, one of the central anxieties, even if you like care about climate change, is this thing of like, what can I do as one person? You know, like, I am not a fossil fuel company. What is it can I do? And I think in the movie... He almost sort of goofs on that anxiety a little. Like there's that scene where De Chanel is like looking at the kid on the swing, like the swinging on the tree branch and the tree branch is creaking a bit. And that's like, should we worry about hurting the trees like this way too? Right. Like that was very funny.
0: I totally agree. I totally agree. This is another in his thematic oeuvre where broken people have to navigate a fallen world. They tell stories to restore meaning and community But I thought that it was really interesting that this works almost as like a negative image reversal of signs, where instead of saying God is real and everything happens for a reason, Knight is basically saying this whole thing is an indirect suicide because the plants are evolving at our provocation. And so there isn't like something making this happen uh, as part of some grand plan. This is our own doing and we've brought it on ourselves. So just a, a fun sort of reversal of his typical <laughs> sort of messaging, I thought, in a way that, you know, I, I found kind of shocking.
1: And I think he kind of does that a lot, too, which is interesting. Like with he, he sometimes does that with family units where like this and signs are both so like about surviving as a family unit, this tight knit family. But then he'll make movies like The Visit or old which kind of just make fun of the entire idea of like a family structure or like I think the the village is pretty critical of that too and I I like that like that he like you can almost see him grappling with some of this in in real time and he'll do these like like yeah I definitely agree that like the happening and signs feel like mirror images in some way and I also think that knock at the cabin feels like another sort of I don't know if that was a triangle like the way he he writes about family and agency, like how much agency you have over the world, or that it's almost like a knock into the cabin. It's almost a joke where like there is this complex rule set, but you have no idea why any of it would work.
0: Right. (laughs) You know, this
1: family has to make some sacrifice to save the world, but like, why would they, why would that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very cool thing with his writing.
0: Definitely. It is also another homage to Hitchcock in many ways, which is one of Knight's idols. Uh, This has the birds written all over it. I also thought that it was kind of interesting. Typically, he's sort of the more operatic side of Hitchcock, and people think of, like, De Palma as the sleazy acolyte. But here, you know, the intensity of the suicide scenes and the third act in particular of this movie does hew a little closer to that more extreme side of Hitchcock that that, uh, he doesn't ordinarily get to emulate as much.
1: Yeah, like, he. there's a lot of extremes that I, like, yeah, you mentioned that this being, like, It must have been his first, yeah, for the the, even just stuff like gore or the grisliness of it. But definitely the old lady's house at the end, like, goes full camp in. (laughs) which is very fun to see him just embrace so fully that character, which I'm I'm sure when I first saw that in a theater, I was like, I'm sure I didn't like that character or that that was the direction the movie went. But yeah, watching it again, I'm like, this is, this is great. This is like perfect. Maybe I just have like a more fuller acceptance of like that range, or maybe I understood more. I understood now more of like the movies he's referencing or like the vernacular he's playing with or or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, I love that.
0: <laughs> we talked about how it reflects a lot of the family unit stuff of Signs and The Village. It also reflects a lot of the sort of post nine eleven sentiment that he's discussing through his films, specifically about the dangers of how being, being part of a group exposes you to heartbreak, but that you can't let that force you into extreme isolation, and the dangers of that as well. You know, the misanthropic attitudes are on full display. I also just think that the look of the movie, a lot of really interesting group shots in the happening that are are sort of reinforcing this idea of the dangers of being in a group, besides just the textual, explicit discussion of that.
1: Yeah, there's like a lot of just all of the shots as the toxin, I guess, is entering their their brains of these groups just sort of, Standing around like zombies, or standing around still, they're so painterly and beautiful and like haunting. And then just on top of that, all of these anxieties about like infrastructure. It's a lot of. I think this and like Final Destination are very good like infrastructure horror movies. All of the things that you've like built up society around like turning on you in some way, or making you more exposed, or making you more vulnerable in some way. Yeah, I was thinking about how this is a parallel to to a little bit of like the. 2005, five Four of the Worlds, which is like also a very like 9-11-y movie. Right. Also has kind of like a miscast regular Joe at the, at the heart of it, you know, like Tom Cruise like is not someone you would normally believe as, is like <laughs> just some schlubby guy you can like barely make end meet,
0: you know? You don't believe that baseball throw he does?
1: Yeah, like stuff like that. <laughs> or just the whole thing of like Tom Cruise working a regular job is like you see him and you think this is not someone who's led a regular life. Right. I don't have the <laughs> teeth of someone who, I like, guess, led a regular life. But I think in both The Happening and War of the Worlds, a lot of the tensions with the characters is that they feel really... Part of why the miscasting, I think, is interesting for, for both movies is that people who do not feel at home in these societal roles that are placed on them they don't identify with some of these like family roles or societal roles and it's only in these like horrible disastrous moments where like some true version of them emerges which you know that's just a, a common thing in disaster movies but certainly like post 9/11 that was something that seemed to come up a lot
0: definitely It is shot pretty just great in general, in my opinion. Tak Fujimoto is the cinematographer, an icon for a reason, not only a multi-time night collaborator, but also shot Silence of the Lambs, the Manchurian Candidate remake. He was even a second unit cameraman for A New Hope. And a lot of the things that he does in terms of just framing where humans are, uh, you know, oftentimes they're kind of the background being dwarfed by swaths of grass or trees in the foreground. Just really, really cool. Also, framing buildings as, like, being swallowed up by the surrounding greenery. A lot of things that sort of build that tension of nature fighting it back without having to worry about, like, okay, how do we communicate this? (laughs) Like, how can can trees be attacking a building through the way that it's framed? And it works super well for me.
1: Yeah, like, it is so beautiful. I feel like uh, the... Because I know he shot Badlands, and I feel like you can see some of like the the way Badlands <laughs> looks in, in the happening. And yeah, I think just M. Knight is like so precise with his visuals. And all all of his movies have just a few, even some of the ones that like work less just have a few shots that are like so evocative and so resonant. And really, for a director like working in you know movies that like get shown in big cineplexes or whatever, really not afraid to give you a very abstract, weird looking image and the happening has a lot of them and and just asking you to figure it out. Like it has a lot of stomach churning images. I always think of like the opening with the the construction workers falling off the building and like, it's just one of the most wretched horror images of all time. Like it's so, so terrible to think about. But then that so much of the rest of the movie is like just people staring at air like staring at (laughs) grass you know staring at the sky and like how to make that visually both interesting and also like at an actual moment of tension where yeah like this would this could a less precise director this could just be a movie about like people aimlessly running because they're running away from like wind currents and stuff but you actually like get a sense of like what that is, and I think you know all of the shots of people like looking at the sky or looking blankly at things. I do feel like that's an also another. That's what climate fe- change feels like. Like people always talk about it. I think like the academic term is like it's a hyper object because you can't see all of it at once or whatever it is. Right. I think I think that's what the, the term I've, I've read is. But this idea of like it's something so big that you like can't get any real vantage point on it, but you experience it all the time. And having a bunch of people just gawking at the air or gawking at the sky, like that's kind of what it feels like. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't know if you can see it, but you know it's there. And like that's like a terrifying feeling that we are all getting used to living with uh, 24 7.
0: (laughs) There is also a prominent mood ring in the story that plays in towards Knight's predilection towards color theory. Here, The one that I want to point out is yellow, which uh, I believe represents sort of the capacity for happiness. Uh, That is basically the definition through the mood ring, which Mark's character, Elliot, says means about to laugh. So as sort of interpreting that and in its other places that yellow shows up, you sort of do see some things pop up in an interesting thematic way. But our stars, as we talked about, are Mark Wahlberg as Elliot, the teacher, Zoe Deschanel as his wife, Alma, and then a rotating supporting cast that each sort of gets a little bit of time to shine during almost vignettes of the movie. Like, as they encounter each new group and, and pair the, their own group down further and further, they meet uh, Johnny John Leguizamo as Julian, Jeremy Strong as Private Auster, Katz's own Betty Buckley as Mrs. Jones. A lot of really fun supporting roles that, like you said, I also will not say that the you know Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel are lighting up the screen every time they're on. Part of that is because it's deliberate miscasting, like we talked about. But also, I think that the supporting cast makes up for it in a lot of ways. That they are very interesting, and they do have these interesting foibles that make them interesting to watch as well.
1: Yeah, like John Leguizamo, especially, like is. I did think watching it, like, oh, there's another version of this movie where John Leguizamo is the star, and it it might be a bit more compelling than watching Wahlberg <laughs> on screen, but a lot of characters who feel really, like, lived in, even though they're just showing up for, yeah, like, maybe five minutes, ten minutes. I do think M. Knight is so sharp at picking actors for, for certain characters, and, like, Ones that would be a little, bring interesting edges to it. Yeah, strong as the military service guy. Being a a bit of a weird, like, you know, he's a bit kind of scrawny in in certain ways. Like, he doesn't necessarily embody that type, you know? In the same way, like, Wahlberg doesn't embody the movie star. And, like, I think there's a lot of that going on. It's not like Deschanel and Wahlberg seem like the most natural couple. Or you watch them (laughs) interact and you think, like, yes, yes. You're bringing all of these years of marriage to this performance, you know? It's the ease you have with each other, or all the baggage you've brought here. It's just, they don't really seem like a, a couple necessarily, right. which is a little maybe part of the point of it, but. Yeah, they're on the verge of a breakup, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I do like that there's, like, something funny about how Deschanel, like, kind of underplays the, like, she's almost embarrassed to be having a midlife crisis. And I do think that's, like, kind of an interesting choice, you know? She recognizes, like, she she had tiramisu with some guy or whatever uh, the, the story is, but, like, she recognizes, like, the cliches of a midlife crisis and is a bit embarrassed by it. And, like, I do think that's, like, actual interesting texture because yeah. it's a little different from the way other midlife crises get played on screen.
0: Definitely. I, I completely agree. I also think when the concept itself is so over the top and extra, if if the characters are also all doing that, it is very easy to tilt over the line of too much. Mm-hmm. And so I think for her character to have that sort of underplayed element – is really beneficial to the movie to help it at least feel like there is some grounded characters to sort of latch on to.
1: Yeah, especially since like the premise is so such an awful thing to think about just people killing themselves en masse or whatever. It's like, a it's a tough balance to hit about like, how would you actually like make this watchable? Or how would you make this unspeakably horrible thing is happening? You also have this thing going on with your marriage. How would you make it seem like you could actually care about this like side thing of your marriage. (laughs) While people are murking themselves in front of you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the movie opened wide on Friday the 13th of June 2008, and as tended to happen, uh, marketing kind of fucked this. They sold a return to form for Shyamalan, action star Mark Wahlberg navigating the apocalypse in a quote, nail-bitingly ferocious thriller. Lots of fast cutting in the trailer, people fleeing in terror. So... Like we said, reception was bad. Also, people had just turned on Knight in general. There were literally critics rooting for its failure, which didn't help to have them putting that out there and being like, oh, I hope that this sucks and is terrible. And, you know, that gets into people's heads. Interestingly, though, he did still have the cachet to make it profitable, even if it was critically ravaged. It made $163 million on a $60 million budget. So, uh, you know, at least it wasn't a complete disaster. So that's that's good good for you m night
1: the the whole thing with like people turning on him too uh, when i rewatched signs pretty recently something that the dying the wife says in her dying whatever i can't remember it don't be afraid to be silly or don't mm-hmm. be afraid to laugh or something like that like so much of signs is about leaning into silliness and right. like just being open and accepting of things that are like somewhat unbelievable and i almost feel like that was like prepping audiences for something like the happening which <laughs> um, as much as it is an inverse of signs in some ways a lot of it is about like having to force forcing yourself to accept something outlandish and yeah yeah i think of, of m Knight as someone who's like been telling his audiences what he's about and audiences like maybe ignoring it a little
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly they see what they wanted to see and uh, and not what he was actually saying
1: I like it in the tradition of like, I like a mass hysteria movie, you know, whether the cause is supernatural or not. I I think of this as like in the tradition of Body Snatchers movies in a little way, but it's also like Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. I think of this as being like pretty kind of similar to, or Larry Cohen's God Told Me To, where like mass killers are kind of activated. People aren't sure why. And I, I do really love like any kind of mass hysteria movie i think both because you know it obviously speaks to like right-wing anxieties about like this is what the crowd can get up to or something like that but when you do look at like the history of like real life hysterias they're usually related to something that are actually like tangible and maybe like people have found some expression because they can't they aren't given a, a real way to like explain it or process it or whatever like the one that comes to mind is like chemtrails or something where like chemtrails might not be real and that, you know it kind of fits with like what the happenings about. but people talking about chemtrails are expressing something that is real, which is our skies are changing and our skies are changing in a way that is like you are not really encouraged to talk about or talk about right. like who's responsible <laughs> for it. So yeah, like any kind of like mass hysteria movie, like I'm just into the, like, there's a lot of contradictions with it because on the one hand, yeah, they do sometimes say reactionary things about like some, the inner nature of mankind being rubes or prone to (laughs) violence or something, which is something I don't believe in. Right. The animalistic side. Yeah. Like something like that, which like is not a, a... a reading of humankind that I agree with, but but they do also just speak to some primal expression of something horrible that you want to talk about. It's like a really common horror feeling. Like, there is something horrible and no one else is acknowledging it but me. Yeah. And I think that's, like, at the root of a lot of, like, mass hysteria movies.
0: Yeah, and also just people... I think you mentioned this with the chemtrails thing, where people, incur- like, not encouraging you to talk about these these tangible changes. Cure I think about the way that everybody is like, eh, don't like, just don't worry about it. Like, it's just like a regular guy going around killing these people. It's not this crazy, mystic, hypnotist guy. And again, you know, Body Snatchers. I it, There is a lot of Body Snatchers in particular in this movie, I think. Knight compared it to The Blob a lot, like I said, but I actually rewatched the 50s version of Body Snatchers again last night because I was like, I'm pretty sure that that's like a better comparison point and it really was uh, you know not only just the overall hysteria of it but even the opening credits are basically one and the same <laughs> this music getting ominous as the sky darkens and these roiling clouds that that are are villainous and we don't even know it yet just really really cool parallels to the two of them uh, also that sort of like heady kind of <laughs> protagonist where you're a doctor I don't know about this man <laughs> <laughs> The
1: unbelievable scientist? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I think the body snatchers thing, yeah, like, I mean, just the idea of your body turning against you in some way or being used against you, but then also like an enemy that's kind of intangible, which is, you know, also feels like a a holdover of War on Terror stuff, but versus the blob or something, which I guess is gooey, but still tangible. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Something where it's just, it's so all around you, it's more like a, a, yeah, like a pandemic or something. Yeah. Versus something you can just, like, pinpoint and fight and identify.
0: Exactly. So, after we get these opening credits, it starts in Central Park. It is, I think, pretty freaky as people move in reverse and then freeze, and the wind whips up. The women we just saw chatting and laughing with her friend, sister, someone, incredibly casually, she just reaches up to grab a metal hair accessory, stabs her own throat with it. There was also a really interesting moment in this opening shot where the woman talking seems to see people clawing at themselves, but we see multiple shots of the area that she's looking at, and everything seems quote-unquote normal except for the walking backwards. So it's unsettling again and sort of just sets you up for that off-balance feeling of already we're getting conflicting information about sort of the scale of this terror and what exactly is happening just a really sort of understated moment in it that i thought was really cool
1: yeah i like how i mean that's definitely how we take in the news right now like about anything is like through these weird bits and pieces where you're not sure like what to trust and like definitely that's a big part of the movie but i also like how in some ways this is him showing less restraint in some core elements than his other movies where you'll see the guy go under the lawnmower and see the the blood start to spray and stuff like that, which is not really the sort of thing he'd do. And, right, cut away I don't for know. sure. <laughs> yeah. But then other times where it's like, yeah, he will pull away because he knows that it's more horrifying to have someone say like, yeah, like, what's what's going on with that person over there? Someone's clawing at their face. Like, that is a more horrible thing to see. And you can just see how restrained he is, like Mm -hmm. knowing when to show a lot and when to show a little. And like the thing of John Leguizamo casually walking out of the car and sitting down and starting to just hack at himself is so you don't get a close up. You see it from afar and you can just... It's done so kind of like in a, in a deadpan way versus other parts of the, the movie where it is going into these sort of like zooms and much more the tradition of like, yeah, an old classic kind of sci-fi movie. And yeah, you just see formally how much he knows what he's doing, like how much to show you, yeah. how much not to. I think the, the one that really like is jarring that I think also does kind of tip his hand more to like what B-movie influences he has is when they're watching the zookeeper get, <laughs> his arms, lost, <laughs> eaten by the lion, and it doesn't look like anything else in an M <laughs> night movie. It, like it looks like such a weird special effect, but I think that was also intentional. Like mm-hmm. that you have this weird like dismemberment that looks so <laughs> so goofy,
0: definitely,
1: and stands out from the rest of the movie and the rest of everything else in in his filmography. That I I think it must be intentional because you can just imagine seeing the lion lunge at the guy and the people looking at the phone going like uh yeah and you can imagine that being the scene but that he actually decides to show the guy walking around with the arterial spray or whatever it seemed like uh seemed like him tipping his hat to something i'd rent from a video store when i was 13
0: <laughs> he is so deliberate with it and he even talked about the leguizamo one in particular in the in the bonus features where he was talking about like originally you saw more like it slowly zooms in and you know, you see him go from, like, one arm to the other and everything. And he said, you know what? This is a character that we have spent more time with. I want to respect him a little more than, you know, these sort of nameless people who uh, we've gotten to sort of get a little giddy with the the suicides with. And so, yeah, the, these this sort of very deliberate c- consideration of how much to show for every single one I thought was was very interesting and, and impressive.
1: Yeah, like that that was such a sad scene.
0: For him to live, he survives and then gets out. Oh, it's cruel. Yeah. Oh, man. A few blocks over, some men working construction start throwing themselves off the building they're making. The way it's shot is super intense. Definitely the first piece of this movie to call 9-11 to mind. It is also notable upon knowing the quote-unquote truth of what's happening, that the higher, more exposed-to-the-wind workers are the ones who start to feel the effects as it spreads away from the park. But also, this idea of just putting up a building, part of the reason they might be the first to go is that it is pretty emblematic of humanity sort of putting their stamp on the Earth. It is directly what Earth is fighting against in this movie.
1: Yeah, and I like that it starts with things that you might imagine being obviously implicated, like highways or buildings as being symbols of our intrusions on nature. But as it keeps going, you kind of realize that You know, like, which I think is the correct reading of humans and nature is like, there is no separation. There is nowhere you can escape a park or a building or anything like that. Like there is a tendency to think like even I think from well meaning conservationists to think of like nature as something that is like over there that you can. Even if you care about nature, you can like protect it or sequester it in some other place, right? Untouched by the human world. And this movie, I think, is a good argument for there is no place where you are not interacting with nature, and nature is not interacting with you. You can't escape it. It can't escape us, certainly. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think it like the way it pans from like different parks to buildings to rural areas uh, that really like hammers at home.
0: Definitely. You know, at one point, one of the characters who we'll meet is, uh, he like runs a nursery. And you might think, oh, he's, you know, he loves plants. Plants are gonna, you know, treat this guy well. But it's also easy to see this greenhouse as like a prison, right? It's like a, a eugenics prison for plants. And, and... You know, he's he's just part of this other thing that is intruding upon them. Like you said, it's not something that you can sort of have be perfectly sequestered into this building that you can raise up to be exactly what you want. It is uncontrollable in a lot of ways. The movie does
1: do a good job of, like, yeah, no one no one really does feel safe, no matter how sympathetic they are. Like, it puts kids in peril in a way that is, like, pretty surprising.
0: <laughs> so... Uh, I mentioned when we were first talking about what movie we were going to pick that I this was a movie I had not seen before. I watched it twice in preparation for this. And when I saw the scenes with the kids getting just like fucking annihilated, <laughs> I was like, I almost fell off of my couch. I couldn't believe it. Incredible. So much respect for Knight to fucking go there. Yeah. Not something a lot of people would do. So. And he, he
1: would go there like later in his career, again. But like I, I don't know if before this movie, he he was so I don't know ruthless. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um. But meanwhile, here in Philadelphia, we join a biology teacher named Elliot. He wants to hear some theories from the kids as to why the honeybees might be disappearing with no trace. It's not disease. It's not pollution. Maybe it's global warming. And one kid who's reluctant to participate at first is convinced to engage in the conversation when Elliot warns him he better get interested in science because the human face grows each year. And in a few years, yours is going to look whack as hell, dog.
1: Some great Mark Wahlberg
0: line delivery. (laughs) Mark Wahlberg, you know, this is a fun moment for him to be like, when you think of him as like Marky Mark. And doing, like, the hip-hop thing. And then you're like, oh, this is that guy. This is him. <laughs> he didn't make it work. And here he is uh, still still trying to reach these kids. But uh, the, the kid winds up suggesting that it's an act of nature and will never fully understand it, which gets Elliot so jazzed. That's right, buddy. They'll come up with some theory for the textbooks, but will fail to acknowledge that there are forces at work beyond our understanding. Obviously thematically relevant, <laughs> a big, big sentence there. But this is interrupted by an emergency faculty meeting where the principal tells them all about an airborne chemical terrorist attack in and around Central Park. Uh, obviously connects to what they were just saying about there needing to be a theory to tell people that they say, oh, this is a, a terrorist attack. But the stages of the pathology are, as we've seen, confused speech, then physical disorientation, and then the third is fatal. Although I, know, I thought it was interesting that they don't say what the fatal aspect of it is when they're telling these teachers here.
1: Yeah, they don't They don't want the teachers to start telling kids about mass suicide. Right. <laughs> the, the terror angle is really even kind of late into the movie. They still have – I think at some point, De Chanel says, like, well, maybe the terrorists hid triggers <laughs> underneath this grass field in, like, the middle of nowhere. Like, still not really willing to believe it could be something else, like, something a bit unexplainable, or, like, just still trying to rationalize, like, why this would be happening. Like, why they would target some random Pennsylvania road, you
0: know? Right. It's almost like a zen koan, right? Where it's, like, part of the experience is the fact that it's not something you can rationalize away and, and being able to accept that is the purpose of it. And so for this like biology teacher in particular to constantly be like, why is this happening? How can I stop it? Ultimately he needs to learn that that is not something he can do, which I uh, thought was, was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. That like so much of it is just accepting that this is just, happening yeah this is the happening
0: (laughs) yeah wow so true (laughs) but because of this attack the kids are dismissed but not without a reminder from elliot about the rules of scientific investigation identify the variables design the experiment careful observation and measurement and interpretation of experimental data elliot now with a plus one for his wife alma is invited by his friend and former teacher julian to join his family outside the city there's a line here that is both funny and a recurring bit Julian says his mom is freaking out, but, quote, I threw some figures at her. It's good to be a math teacher sometimes. People are comforted by statistics. Didn't work, though. (laughs) I laughed so hard for him to be like, oh, I have this great plan about comforting people. And then to just follow it up with it didn't work. Yeah. Really great. And, of course, we see this coming time and time again. People on the news throwing figures about when it should be over and when it might end and what the cause is. You see this sort of not working <laughs> over and over again.
1: I do like, yeah, at some point the news guy is like, and after this it will plateau. And just this feeling of like, well, why? <laughs> why, why would you assume that's the peak Like versus any other point? <laughs> right. Being Yeah, pretty funny.
0: Elliot says he'll consider it, but he isn't sure because Alma has been acting weird lately, but she's not leaving him. That's just talk. And this seems like a good time to discuss a pretty important deleted scene. This scene creates sort of a structural issue because the opening with the suicides is so impactful. what, What a way to get thrown into the movie. But initially, the movie was going to open with the fight that they're referencing here. And it is intense. Alma throws a figure at him, which I thought is a funny callback to the line with Julian, where it's a literal figure. But this also is sort of the eruption of the guilt that she feels about being a pessimist and her despair at Elliot's refusal to grow up. She decries his constant jokes, which then also colors the jokes in the classroom that we just saw.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I've never seen that, that deleted scene, but now I really would like to. I, I, yeah. I'm going to watch that as soon as we stop recording.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really powerful. It changes a lot of sort of the relationship between Alma and Elliot. It also changes a lot of the nature of the mood ring, which is not a cherished memento, as you might think, but is actually one that he got from the cereal box that morning and goes, oh, look, remember like when we went on the first date? I do like the fight being there. It lends a lot of context to the following thoughts from Julian, who isn't a fan of Alma's, but also I do understand sort of how it wound up being like, yeah, we just got to get into it with the suicides. (laughs) It is a a really intense way to open, so. But Julian says he saw her crying on the wedding day, and Elliot goes, oh, again with the wedding. And this is because in the fight, Alma mentions it as well. She says, quote, The reason I'm scared to have kids, Elliot, is all I see when I look at the world is crap. How am I supposed to bring a kid into the world feeling like that? I knew when I met the right guy, he would make me feel safe to have that kid. He would change the way I see things. On our wedding day, when I walked down the aisle and I saw you waiting, I knew you weren't the guy to make me feel safe. And Julian doesn't stop. He warns Elliot she's never going to jump in when you need her, man, which then mirrors her fear that in a big moment he won't step up. So there is a lot of sort of mirror imagery happening with this fight that did get cut. So, yeah, it, it is kind of a vital scene, honestly, almost in a lot of ways. But, uh, yeah, that structural issue is just kind of tough to overcome. Yeah, that that makes
1: sense that they would cut it. But, yeah, it does sort of make, like, knowing that, it makes sort of scenes that I just thought were kind of darkly funny. Like, when they're all pastoring him to come up with a solution, because he's the science teacher. Right. I guess. <laughs> and they're, like, shouting at him, and he's like, just let me think about this. Like, I don't have a solution to the air disease right now. <laughs> um, knowing that, it does, like make the scene like i already thought that was sort of a fun and funny moment but um yeah that like adds more texture to it or makes it even funnier almost yeah (laughs) like that stepping up would require like like that sort of level of like why don't you have a solution for how to escape trees you know
0: come on elliot you gotta have that ready to go dude yeah in his back pocket (laughs) This is when we meet Alma herself. She's ignoring a call from someone named Joey, who was voiced by night in his signature cameo, uh, staring at the phone on the table as it rings in what I thought was just a very nice shot. Good way to meet her. <laughs> Elliot appears home, though, or he arrives home, and, he, and she turns on the news to show him that New York City is being evacuated because the toxin appears to block the neurotransmitters that stop us from indulging our every fatal impulse, causing specific self-damaging and catastrophic effects. Basically, people can't stop their death drive, and to me, this connects to our inability to take the foot off the pedal on environmental destruction, which, of course, is ultimately harming ourselves in favor of short-term pleasures or conveniences. This idea of just not being able to stop yourself from doing this, of of having these impulses realize themselves in such a concrete way is is frightening, I think.
1: I I do also like that the implication isn't that it makes you kill yourself it just it's that it removes the thing that stops everyone from wanting to kill themselves all the time right. you know which is like <laughs> such a, a more grim and funny and like very like horror way to approach it where it's not driving you to suicide it's that Everyone inherently, yeah, already has this death driver. Is already like kind of has these intrusive thoughts all the time. Like, what if I just walked in front of this car? What if I like jumped out of this window? You know. Yeah. Which I think is like a, a very honest thing to admit that like that is a thing that is like running through your brain a lot. You have everyone has like intrusive thoughts like that, and just like a way funnier thing than like yeah, it's making you kill yourself. <laughs> like no, it's just removing the barrier. <laughs> that,
0: yeah, stopping you from you know. stopping yourself. <laughs> yeah. We also see a newspaper here, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Inky itself, with the headline, Killadelphia! Murder rates soaring. (laughs) This does tie into Alma's catastrophizing in terms of why she feels so nervous to have a kid and everything. They head to 30th Street Station, where Julian is waiting for them with his daughter Jess. He already got them tickets since he was here and people are fighting for them, but his wife, Yvette is stuck in traffic and she'll catch the next train. One of the special features was all about just, like, shooting at 30th Street Station, which they did have to leave completely functional, which I thought was kind of interesting. Difficult to shoot around. Apparently didn't look like it was going to happen right up until it happened, which is kind of hard to imagine them not being able to use that. Because, like, them departing from Philadelphia is such an integral part of the movie. I guess they probably would have just drove, maybe. But I don't know. It's a great scene. And uh, 30th Street Station is a gorgeous building. So,
1: is the symbolism of like him leaving Philly. I can't remember if he did a movie before this that took place outside of Philly. I'm just trying to think of like the times he's shot outside of Philly, like like what, so. aside from like Avatar, the last airbender or yeah. after earth or something than his other non Philly movies.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that that is sort of it. You know, he, he went to Paris, which I think was his first non U S shoot for sure.
1: This is maybe too off topic or maybe not. Have you seen that? made for tv like mockumentary the hidden i think it's called the hidden secret of m night
0: where they're like he can talk to ghosts and that's where the sixth sense came from
1: it's and it's that like the reason everything he shoots is in philly all the time and like he can't leave philly and he won't in the part of the mockumentary is that like he has never been like interviewed or he can't like drive outside the city limits or something (laughs) is because as a kid he like nearly drowned and now exists in a state between life and death and like can't leave philadelphia and he got really mad that (laughs) i think it was like the sci-fi network that commissioned it (laughs) and as they were promoting it they were like yeah this is like a a mockumentary and he got really mad that they would spoil that in the marketing as though someone would watch it and Suspect it was (laughs) that M. Knight really was like not neither living nor dead.
0: (laughs) He thought it was going to be the next Burkittsville Seven.
1: Like some people thought that he was actually bound to the city of Philadelphia.
0: (laughs) That actually is true, though. He is, I've seen him around. He's sort of a specter Mm. wandering around Philadelphia.
1: I mean, anytime I visited Philly, I keep hoping I would run into him. As though that's just something that is very commonplace, but hasn't happened each visit.
0: He like is a big supporter of the Philadelphia Film Society here, and so every year they like if you are like the highest level member or whatever, you get like a ticket to his Halloween party. And every year I'm like, oh, that would be so fucking cool.
1: <laughs> oh, I would love that so much. I would just imagine it like you know his Amex commercial where like it's him at a coffee shop. Or it's him at a cafe or something, and normal people just see a bunch of other diners at this cafe, but because he's M. Night, he sees, like, one person with, like, a frog tongue catching a fly or someone else who, like, a cult or (laughs) – I don't know. I think about it a lot.
0: Sure. That's that's just what life is like here in Philadelphia, so. Perfect. (laughs) So over at Rittenhouse Square, which is a lovely park here in Philadelphia, the wind kicks up and everyone stops moving, except for the dog – poignant moment where a dog uses this opportunity to break for freedom and then the mass suicides begin individually using the same gun this is a fucking wild scene uh, you know you talk about what you see versus what you don't see hearing the the shots reverberate over and over again is wild
1: yeah like the chain reaction is just yeah another like great wretched horror moment
0: definitely There's no commentary track for this on the disc, but there is a trivia track. And so I thought, that'll probably be good for this as well. Turns out, it's absolutely unhinged. It'll be like, the average temperature in Philadelphia is 56 degrees. Philadelphia averaged one murder and four shootings every day in 2007. (laughs) The first cell phones were the size of a Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich. Here's the definition of tiramisu. I think I laughed at every single fact. That is that is
1: good trivia that something that might come up at a trivia night, you know, that sort of thing. What was the average murder rate? per Yeah, day? that's <laughs> right. In 2007.
0: <laughs> so while seated alone on the train, Alma finally gets a chance to call Joey back and she tells him to back the fuck off. They ate tiramisu together and that's it. The night did get a real train and a 15 mile spur that they rented, which, you know, adds a bunch of authenticity to it. Great practical train action, baby. We love it. <laughs> On the train, though, word and panic spread like the wind of the uh, quote-unquote attack in Philadelphia. Elliot is surprised it's another park as the attack zone, but Julian is glad to hear his wife got on a bus to Princeton instead of being in the affected area. This is the opposite direction, though, as they're headed west towards Harrisburg. And Alma seems to be reacting to the same news, but when Elliot reaches her, she tells him there was another attack in Boston. So the scope, I think a really awesome way to have the scope like expand really suddenly on you. Suddenly the train stops, though. Service has been discontinued here because they lost contact with everyone. Cutting off transportation, famously a big part of siege warfare. These trees are good. <laughs> mm-hmm. They stop into the Filbert Diner in Phoenixville, PA, where Elliot tries to comfort Jess with the mood ring. I do really like the moment where he makes her laugh. I think it's a funny bit. I also like when M. Knight gets to sort of indulge his dad side, and I think it is probably Wahlberg's best moment of acting in the movie.
1: Yeah, I agree, and you can kind of see where he was coming from with that casting choice, because especially for him, like, he has been pretty good at casting people who are known for being, like, these, like, beacons of masculinity and making them, like, Sort of soft and vulnerable, like Mel Gibson or Bruce Willis or Dave Bautista or, or whoever. So, yeah, like that moment in particular, it's like you can really see what he was getting at with with Wahlberg.
0: Definitely. This is when we see the video of the man at the Philadelphia Zoo feeding himself to the lions. One of the women asks, Mother of God, what kind of terrorists are these? Which, <laughs> like, the, the, I, it is funny because, of course, it's not at that point but she needs an answer so she clings to it just as the news reports that that's no longer the official stance and that's such
1: like a recurring thing in his in his movies like both here in the village and even just sort of like in lady in the water in the background you always see kind of like war in iraq stuff going on m night's pretty frequently just talking about people's base paranoia this way like specifically around stuff like the war on terror
0: definitely They also discussed in the behind the scenes material that while Knight normally tries to leave the technology kind of timeless, the iPhone had just come out and they wanted to use it to show how quickly the ability to compound the panic happens when it can pass virally, you know, really ahead of its time in a lot of ways in terms of like, it's this ability to communicate having these, these negative impacts as well at instant Mm -hmm. speed.
1: Yeah, I guess if that lion video was released, it would, it would be a hit. It would go viral.
0: <laughs> yeah. The diner is in the exact middle of the affected area, and it's 90 miles to the border, so it basically turns into Cannonball Run <laughs> as they all start driving away. Having taken the train, though, our group doesn't have a ride, and nobody wants to help, because what if you're a damn virus? Nobody, that is, except a man who runs the plant nursery. He offers the whole group a ride, but Julian declines. He can't get a hold of his wife, so he's going to Princeton with another pair, and he asks Elliot and Alma to look after Jess. And He says, don't take my daughter's hand unless you mean it to Alma, Uh, and she does. But the idea of don't take her hand unless you mean it does reinforce her fears about their marriage as well and comes back at the end. They arrive at the nursery where their ride has to pick up a few things. There's a great shot of the highly manicured lawn, which, you know, people who are into nature know that that is a terrible thing. <laughs> and, uh, that lawns are a huge waste of water and, uh, you know, just all kinds of terrible things that happen because of them. But you get this and the background is the limerick nuclear power plant. You know, sort of that idea of these paranoid you know, feelings. There was a failure scare there in 2016. Obviously, that hadn't happened at the time. But just the idea of being scared of nuclear energy and stuff, that sort of same paranoia, definitely a a thing here in PA Three Mile Island is in PA as well. So certainly a history of that here.
1: And like, I guess one of the most classic eco horror movies would be the Godzilla, just general franchise, right, would be one of the, the most classic yeah eco horror movies
0: definitely also a funny moment where the guy that they're riding with hypes up hot dogs he's like you a hot dog man
1: <laughs> that was a really weird exchange <laughs> like i loved it but yeah really weird one
0: do you like hot dogs
1: i do like a hot dog i i'm not like um i probably more of a pogo guy like mm. if i if someone offered like both of them to me yeah. i would you know gravitate towards the pogo but i sure. do like a hot dog
0: yeah. see this is this is my thing as well is that i'm personally not like a big hot dog fan it's not like oh my god i'm gonna puke if i eat a hot dog but usually where there's dogs there's burgs, and i'm going burger a hundred percent of the time between those two options
1: that's true toronto toronto hot dog culture for a while That was the only type of street food you could get because there were like so many regulations about who could sell food on the street. Mm. So I did feel like, okay, that's that's how I associate with hot dogs is like for a while. It was the only option at a certain time of night.
0: Wow. There you go. Uh, But this this hot dog nursery man shares his theory that it is the plants. He says they can release chemicals. Of course, the hot dog stuff is meant to make him look insane, along with the talking to the plants. You know, he says they react to human stimulus, they proved it in tests, and he tosses this off very haphazardly. But it is interesting to sort of have M. Knight be like, I mean, this is the most likely answer. Like, that this guy who everyone is just like, oh, he's a fucking loon who loves hot dogs, that he's the one who's on to things. So,
1: and he gets a first shot, you know.
0: Mm hmm, mm hmm. Over in Princeton, it is awful. They're greeted by the town sign, and just beyond that, a tree covered in an entire landscaping crew. It looks like a lynching, and I thought it was very telling that we see this group of men whose job it is to dominate nature and curtail it. And there's a genuinely scary moment where they close all the vents, but you still hear the wind, like, whistling above, and you're like, they're in a jeep. The whole deal is exposure to the elements.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and then it's just the little slit, right? That's
0: right. uh, Little rip in the roof. And Julian tells them a math riddle to try and calm them down about how much money you'd have at the end of a month if every day, starting from a penny, you doubled it. And yes, it is a coping mechanism in the moment, but it also, I think, demonstrates sort of the layperson's lack of comprehension concerning the impact of something small and the way ecological issues do compound. You know, if you have a penny... And you and you start doubling it, you wind up with millions of dollars. And the same way that you know a little uh, a degree here, a percentage of a degree here and there, it builds and it builds and it exacerbates all of the other issues that then keep the heat rising. Uh, it's just, yeah, you know, this these sort of little things that are so indicative of that paranoia and and anxiety. I just think that Knight does such an incredible job of baking it into every layer.
1: And, and just our inability to grasp the sheer scope of things. Where, yeah. yeah. Like, a, is there a first answer like $30 or something? And yeah. Like, yeah, just how it's almost like impossible to not just see things from the smallest vantage point, like something so immense, like the happening.
0: Yeah. And the car stops, then accelerates directly into a tree. Julian, like we said, does make it out. He sits in the middle of the road, grabs a shard of glass and cuts his wrist. This is when we hear another theory in the news. Water contamination. The road is littered with corpses. They think it's animals, but it's humans. Alma starts rambling about how she knew it was going to be bodies, which does reinforce that semi-deleted catastrophizing. This is also when the trivia track let me know that Pennsylvania ranks among the 10 worst states for vehicle deer collisions. Thank you, trivia track.
1: <laughs> I mean, wow. That I guess that's sort of relevant too. <laughs> I guess. All movies should have this. Like yeah. It shouldn't be a bonus feature. Just, like You should be watching a movie in a theater, and these are the sorts of facts that should be playing like, pop-up <laughs> video style while you're watching tar or something. Yeah, hell yeah. Amsterdam's greatest natural export is, you know, that's all I want. Yeah.
0: They turn around for a new route, a really awesome choreography to focus on the car running over a patch of wildflowers, crushing them, and then kicking a bunch of dirt all over them as they peel out. It also is another nice shot of the forest overtaking the man-made structures. In this case, the road vanishes over a hill, making it look like it's being engulfed by the woods and shadow. It's a really cool looking scene. And they see the army, we're saved. Just kidding, they're fucked too. (laughs) Um, Jeremy Strong is just a private, and he tells them that he just got to the, or he just left the fort And it was full of soldiers who had thrown themselves into the barbed wire. He also says cheese and crackers as his sort of swear, which, you know, you talk about sort of softening these hyper-masculine actors into someone more gentle and everything. Here he's doing that with just the trope. Of of an army man, right? Where he's he's now reduced him to this cheese and crackers saying guy. He won't even swear.
1: That also has sort of a '50s B movie kind of thing to it, too.
0: Definitely I'm talking that way. Yes. They get the news of Princeton, and we hear a woman's daughter go through the symptoms after being near a window by a tree. She's in calculus now. Uh, I know some mushrooms that'll do that a little less fatally. <laughs> but all they can hear on the other end of the call now is the wind from outside. I do think it's effective, you know, I – this is the thing, is that I think it's very easy for people to go, oh, you know, it's – you can't be scared of the wind or you can't be scared of the grass or the trees or whatever. But if you, like, just let the movie, (laughs) like, suck you in, if you lean into the movie, I do think that these moments are frightening and when you think about what they represent uh, on a sort of larger scale – these scenes work for me
1: yeah and i think like any kind of ecological horror movie like or nature fights back movie usually like that i mean that's the hook it's like what would make a bunch of birds scary and it's like well them doing this or like <laughs> you know like mushrooms or whatever it might be like ants that's that's like one of my most favorite things is like you we think we have this assumption of how nature works and so many aspects of nature. We like anthropomorphize to try to make it seem more legible to us or the behavior of an animal seem legible to us or a plant even. And then it's like, well, no
0: (laughs) (laughs) kind of reminds me of annihilation almost in terms of like the way that it alienizes nature and, and sort of does create that feeling of unknowability.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Or, um, you ever see that? Like it's, it's a, mockumentary about bugs called hellstrom chronicle i
0: don't think i know that one
1: it's cool because i think most of it is true about the bugs but it's also about how they're plotting to like rise up against like it's a one the narrator is like the one doctor who knows the conspiracy bugs have against mankind it's (laughs) uh it's solid it would be a good double feature with the happening
0: i think that sounds fun and so it's a hundred percent true it sounds like what you're saying (laughs) exactly (laughs) Elliot and Jess share a cry sesh in the reeds, comforting each other about the loss of their best friend-slash-dad, while Alma is still distant, emotionally, in that she is still holding it back, but also physically can't bring herself to join them because of this emotional distance. But it is the beginning of the rehab of their relationship, I think. Uh, she sees him stepping up to comfort this child in an adult way that she feared he couldn't. So, you know, that's that's a, a nice moment there. And Elliot bounces back to help plan with the private... Hot dog man chews a hot dog and admires this trait with Alma, and she admits he never gives up. He also goes into his theory a bit more. He said plants evolve these targeted defense abilities extremely quickly and can all communicate with each other. And he's going a little, like, bug-eyed here, and Alma just, like, nods to placate him. <laughs> it feels like Again, sort of a fun, understated moment from her. But because it's populations being attacked... A realtor tells them all about a tiny town not on maps, dirt roads, the works. That's their safe zone. And on their way there, this is when Alma confesses to having dessert with Joey because she's feeling guilty in case they die. And the wind picks up, and the group behind them starts to act strange. You see two men arguing while Private Auster screams something that was drilled into him My firearm is my friend, it will not leave my side. He starts to walk stumblingly backwards, and the wind blows through the grass, and he blows his brains out.
1: The thing of, like, before people dying, either repeating something you just said or, like, repeating something that, yeah, like, might be a little, like, drilled into them does also, yeah, like, it's a very good classic kind of zombie movie thing, because, like, that will frequently be a joke of zombie movies is, like, out of muscle memory, even in death, performing some, some horrible chore.
0: Sure, Bub, the, the ultimate zombie who who remembers uh, his Aunt Alicia. But these shots continue to ring out over the field as Elliot, Elliot's group scrambles to think. This is when he begs for a moment while everyone's freaking out and demanding answers. It is, I think, a good encapsulation of stress as it like goes fisheye. And like you said, it's an impossible thing that they are demanding of him. <laughs> How is he <laughs> supposed to have an answer for this?
1: Yeah, he's a science teacher. Like, why wouldn't he know what to do?
0: <laughs> I guess, I guess so. But he does start to think that Hot Dog Man was right about it being the plants. Their group was larger and might have set off the trigger before us. And something from within the field recognized a large enough group of them as humans and got them killed. The wind swirls around them and howls through the tall grass. So they panic and split up into even tinier groups. They showed the wind machines that they had there. 650 horsepower NASCAR engines attached to these fans that would go up to 7,000 rotations per minute really funny quote from Knight where he said not a lot of dialogue happening while those are running. (laughs) Oh, funny. Yeah. (laughs) But this was the point. Yeah. Where I, I, I really was like, it's easy. The cynicism of today's viewers make it difficult for it to succeed, but all of the B movie elements, you know, that is what you have to embrace if you want it to be a successful, scary movie. I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: But since they're a small enough group now to pass through the defenses, the wind passes over them for now. And Elliot goes looking for a map in an abandoned truck. Someone on the radio mentions the nuclear power plants in the Northeast and theorizes that they're to blame. I cracked up when he and Alma are like talking and, and yeah, she says, oh, it, maybe it was a terrorist trap in the field that they triggered. And Elliot calls it Bumbletown, Pennsylvania, which <laughs> <laughs> like... It is rated R. He would have been allowed to say bumblefuck. <laughs> yeah. So I mean weird. maybe Bumbletown. I don't
1: I'm not that familiar with Pennsylvania. Maybe Bumbletown, real place.
0: Wow. Great point. Maybe it is. And and I'm the I'm the fool here.
1: <laughs> Apologies to the denizens of Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they decide to stick to their plan though, avoiding people by heading to Arrendale. This is the famous moment where Elliot notices a tree in the corner and starts to talk to it in a comforting tone. Good vibes, we just want to use the bathroom and then leave. Wait a minute, plastic, I'm talking to a plastic plant. I do find it frustrating that everyone is like, ha it's so stupid, but like it's clearly a joke. It is yeah, a, it's like clearly intentional purpose. humor, yeah. yeah. One of the kids they're with points out that everything is fake. Even the juice in the cups, the computer on the counter, the sushi on the plates. Uh, first off, very wasteful. But also, the red-headed kid is Spencer Breslin, who is Abigail Breslin from Science's Brother, which I Whoa, did not know.
1: did yeah. not know. Yeah, wild, that is some good wild trivia. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Elliot tells the second kid there about the resurgence of a deadly primordial bacteria in Australia. He says it crests and then stops, but they just need to be alive when it's over. I did think it was very funny that he's holding a fake glass of wine during this pontification.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they have like the fake orange juice they're kind of drinking, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: They leave, though, knowing that the location will draw people, and indeed it does, triggering a fresh wave of suicides as they flee. This is where we get the infamous lawnmower scene, where a guy just lies down in front of an industrial mower. It is very grisly. It is also another example of an implement of repressing nature being turned on us. So yeah, just a really great moment. It's especially bleakly funny, though, juxtaposed with the next shot of them running past the sign for the future site of Clear Hill Community, a name oh, yeah. that already <laughs> evokes deforestation as it promises 1340 new deluxe homes. And at the top of the sign, it says, you deserve this.
1: Oh, that's funny. I feel like I, I should rewatch the village because all this like the talk about kind of the, the weird development and stuff, it feels like they would. It would be cool to see them side by side and how how the village handles it.
0: Yeah, I actually just rewatched that as well, because I was just like in an M. Night mood after watching this. So I was like, damn, these do really work together in a really fun way. But as they cruise, one of the kids chats with Elliot about how blaming Alma for wanting him to grow up before having kids isn't right. And he needs to take personal responsibility for himself in a relationship. That'll make a difference, he says. Just a fun idiosyncratic moment for this child (laughs) to be... (laughs) so insightful but an emergency broadcast tells them to flee to the western borders but they have to make a quick break and food stop since there's a house nearby although elliot does want to keep moving he also confesses to alma here that if they're gonna die she should know about the hot pharmacist he talked to and almost bought a completely superfluous six dollar bottle of cough syrup from she asks if he's joking and when he nods she tears up and says thank you It is kind of a strange moment, especially if you don't have the opening fight, I think. But, uh, you know, it's sort of this forgiveness if he feels like it's okay to joke about what happened here. I think that the fact that she is so against his joking all the time does play into it in an interesting way. It does make it a little bit more textured, uh, as as you were saying. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is. is, It's a strange moment, but it does work for me.
1: Yeah, I think to it, like. That, that is one of the moments where you can actually imagine them as a couple and like having an actual unique dynamic in the way couples do. Right. <laughs> having little annoying tics or little kind of funny, recognizable things like that. Yeah.
0: Definitely. This is where we get that fun shot of Alma pushing Jess on a tree swing, more exploitation of the tree for humanity's entertainment, while Elliot frets and it like pans up at the tree threateningly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's really it's great a great, stuff. great shot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of the kids threatens to kick in the door, but the other one spots some movement in there. And they deny entrance at first, uh, and Elliot is getting a lot of questions his wear-perfectly-normal shirt should already be answering, so he cajoles them with a few bars of black water by the Doobie Brothers. Truly a surreal moment.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that's a good way of disarming someone, you know. Sure. De-escalating a situation, I guess. <laughs> Humor is a great de-escalation tactic, I can say.
0: Definitely. It does, though, culminate incredibly with one kid getting aggressive. So the people inside open the door just enough to peek out a shotgun, absolutely blow him away. Then they stick another gun out the window and shoot the other child they picked up along the way in the friggin' head. Truly wild stuff. In the version we see, you get there's like a gaping head wound for several seconds, but it was originally even worse. There's. A comical amount of focus on this scene in the bonus features, including the shooting of it and discussing about how if they would included it as filmed, they'd wind up with an NC-17. It is definitely intense. A huge piece of this dude's skull pops off. And M. Night said that with the cumulative effect of the deaths, it felt exploitative, not impactful, hmm. which I can, I can understand that for sure. There was also very funny footage of the two kids tossing a football around between takes, and the one kid still has half his head hanging off.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty good. I, I love stuff like that. Yeah, it, I like the way it was handled in the movie, and I do think any more focus on it would be like in any, even in the grisliest of horror movies, when a kid dies, like that is usually like fairly impactful and i think you know a, a smart betrayal of an audience contract where like well you, you don't think the kid is going to die you think these other characters are expendable that like the kid will make it out alive
0: so right.
1: yeah having kid death you got to i don't
0: know <laughs> ride the line for sure a
1: little goes a long way with kid
0: death like <laughs> in, in movies and it's two right in a row so you know you, you can't if it was just the one maybe you could blow his skull off but yeah. for both <laughs> yes it also does feel like more of that post 9-11 commentary, this sort of trauma-induced self-defense mode that people felt in the aftermath of being attacked, and also sort of what nature itself is doing in this world. It has been traumatized, and so it's defending itself. This is when we get some funny uh, shots of a couple knitting grannies in Petersburg, West Virginia, each with a gas mask on, <laughs> That's the news reports that there's been no new people crossing the border, so everyone left in the affected area must be waiting it out. They also bring on a professor to try and do what Julian said and comfort people with some statistics as they cower in the tub waiting to see if their city is next. But like we said, he says, hey, our projections show it could end at any moment, dropping precipitously. Of course, these are only probabilities.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Like, yeah, we just think it
0: it could stop right Right. I also love that the, there's like a moment very shortly after that where some militia types are like loading up on ammo and they nod knowingly as the news also floats the theory that the government could be involved in this. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, because it's like there's a, a lab, right? Like a northeastern lab or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the, the,
0: like a confidential informant told us the CIA has several facilities in the area, which, OK, unassailable logic, I guess. yeah. <laughs> But our gang finds another house, boarded up with no power and an undisturbed road, and Elliot goes ahead to check it out. One thing I really find pretty awesome about this act of the movie is that it almost starts over. It's like its own sectioned-off little horror movie as they approach this house.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this, like, gothic horror premise of this thing.
0: and he rings a bell that he finds and the camera pans to reveal a woman on the porch casually sitting on a rocking chair uh, notably surrounded by plants she's even wearing a floral blouse sort of subconsciously declares her a threat the blouse is the same color as the wall because she has truly become one with it retreated into complete isolation really stylish reveal great camera work to have that pan around just a really awesome introduction to this area And this is Mrs. Jones, who says the bell is for her retriever, Clement, who seems to be gone, uh, but presumably she wants there to be the defensive threat of a dog. And she asks them if they're lost, and why are you eyeing my lemon drink? Color theory-wise, more capacity for happiness. Hers is bitter from lemons, but it's hers, and she's scared people will try and take it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is the work in there. And she says, I also thought, you know, if Elliot is eyeing it, and she's not just making that up sort of works in terms of like he is pursuing happiness with Alma they're they're working on it and so he's he's you know jealous of other people's capacity for happiness and whatever whatever capacity that is even if it is this isolation that this woman has put herself in
1: as things get pared and pared down even though it does enter this sort of separate movie like this little mini play <laughs> this uh woman driven mad or whatever it does seem a little perfect that like yeah as the vignettes go from like like big crowded areas to smaller groups to smaller groups to It's like, yeah, why not? Like this is inevitably where that arc would go, which would be, this just like some Gothic horror premise of like one person driven mad by isolation. Like even if that was a viable mode for survival, it's like not really surviving because you, you go crazy.
0: Exactly. Exactly. She offers them dinner. And I suppose the kind thing for me to do would be to offer you supper. She says, and the gang does enter hesitantly, And over supper, she regales them with her theory that no relationship is ever standing still. Both people looking at each other on even footing with equal love in their eyes. Someone is always chasing someone. That's how we're built. So who's chasing? And Elliot sheepishly raises his hand. Another moment of actual good acting, I think, from Mark Wahlberg here. Uh, This Mm -hmm. feels very real and very charming in that moment. So nice work, Mark. Mark.
1: And a a good, like, sad moment, too. Like, funny, but also, like, yeah. Like, it is a nice, sad, an actual kind of relatable thing.
0: Yeah, for for them to know that it's him, (laughs) like, (laughs) that is sad. But they kind of giggle around the table, and it's interrupted when Mrs. Jones slaps the hand of Jess, who was reaching for a cookie, yellowy joy in the light. And she says, don't touch things that aren't yours. And she almost seems surprised at herself. You know, obviously everyone else is surprised, but it almost seems like she didn't expect it, especially because she follows it up. You know, there's a short wait, but she does give Jess the cookie. They talked in the behind the scenes stuff about how this really is demonstrative of her worldview, of how people take and take and take if you give them an inch and without even asking and sort of this is how she starts to spiral here. She has let this drive her isolation. She has no radio. She refuses to hear about the world event. She says the world doesn't care about me. I don't care about it. And this is the moment where we finally get a close-up of Mrs. Jones. And as she says this, you can see a stitched-up scar across her throat. I think it's really interesting, like, subtle world-building, because it makes me wonder what exactly made her retreat from the world. You know, was it the military obligation of her also-missing husband, presumably killed in action from the photo we see? Did she maybe try to kill herself at the news of the death? Was she possibly the victim of a crime like in the village? You know, that whole, the whole point is about how everybody just experiences these awful crimes and then retreats into isolation. Maybe she really is sort of emblematic of that type of person here who had a horrible crime visited upon them and, and uses that as an opportunity to write off all of humanity.
1: Yeah, the village thing seems like, yeah, like a really like tight continuum. And then almost in like the, the visit kind of becomes more extreme because they're, those people are, like, more outright villainous or something. Right. But, like, M. Night is really interested in the idea of the ways people, like, hold themselves up, and often for, like, very sympathetic reasons, you know, and... Yeah, which I guess makes the visit not on that continuum, <laughs> but but certainly like yeah, the village and this like this this thing of what it means to maybe do something that would be a, a very understandable and some sympathetic way of like protecting yourself or shielding yourself from something like very horrible or traumatic or really real fear, but that ends up making you just like relive it over or just live with it all the time you know like that's certainly the the message of the village and yeah like i i I like that stuff here where even though mrs jones is like a fairly cartoonish character you do get this sense of like how this character was created
0: definitely and i think that in that way it also aligns with unbreakable and glass and and split and and you know those movies as well in terms of samuel l jackson's character sort of Having gotten to this point because of his, you know, his illness and the way that people treated him because of that illness. So definitely something that occupies a lot of his thoughts. And Mrs. Jones says, I suppose I have to let you spend the night reluctantly. And, you know, they're really nice shot of the house completely surrounded by greenery as the night wind blows. Just a really great shot. Alma confesses her fear in general, but also about this woman specifically. There's something exorcisty about her, she says. And it's interesting that in the special features, they said that she's what Alma could become if she gave in to her worst impulses about catastrophizing. But Elliot says they need to play it cool to have the shelter, again, kind of representative of their situation at large in the new world. Once the panic defense ends, you're allowed to chill again, but only on your best behavior. She's agitated and paranoid, could turn on you again at any second. And in fact, this mother nature stand-in freaks out at their whispering, planning on stealing something, planning on murdering me in my sleep. It's great,
1: great line delivery too. Just like a great, great performer in that role. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She's great. And then yeah, followed up by Mark Wahlberg going, what ma'am? No. (laughs) Classic. But she leaves them. And as day breaks, the leaves still rustle in the breeze. So don't get too comfortable, they say, but they've made it to another morning. And Elliot looks for the rest downstairs And after peeking through a cracked door, he finds a doll lying in a bed that looks like a mummified child. It also looks a lot like the figure that Alma threw at him in the deleted fight scene. Whoa, weird. Yeah. (laughs) Also, like I said, Knight loves Hitchcock. This is sort of a reverse psycho. It's a mom with a fake son instead of a son with a fake mom. There's also a lot of religious needlepoint on the wall, not present in the rest of the house, so it is a shock, including an intense one that says, Thou God Sees Ye! That's scary.
1: And also interesting for, like, yeah, like, M. Knight sometimes embracing religion and then sometimes rejecting it, you know.
0: She's there suddenly, demanding they leave now. Also, her worn crucifix is visible for the first time. And she storms out of the room and to the garden, where she succumbs to the same symptoms— The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, she says as the wind kicks up. Still unsure of where the other two are, Elliot starts to panic, exacerbated by Mrs. Jones hurling herself through not one but two windows in her suicide attempt, which also does tie back to her already cut throat. And as the camera pans around, we see the same painting that was above the TV of the women in gas masks. I'm not sure what that means, but it's there for people who want to consider that. Mm -hmm. i couldn't come up with anything but i thought it was weird that it was the same painting i don't know maybe it was just a budget thing (laughs) just maybe
1: just a cool weird choice you know like
0: yeah elliot tries to seal the door and he hears alma and jess giggling and talking to a frog the problem is that he's hearing them from a speaking tube that went out to the place where they hid slaves in the past a place much more exposed to the elements as well and he warns them through the tube But they're separated and feeling that pain of isolation as the end seemingly looms. After all, she was alone when it happened. So it's sensitive to the point that it could happen to any of them. And yeah, you know, again, Elliot is dejected. He's trying to grasp a solution. He's isolated in this bare room, rambling, and he just can't do it. And so instead, what he does, he connects to his emotions. The mood ring that he's wearing is a deep amber and the wind howls. And they reminisce about its origin in their first real conversation, which I thought was ironic considering it doesn't happen until they're separated. Mm -hmm. But he bought it for her on their first date because she was so quiet and it turned purple when she wore it. That means you're in love, he said. Got you to talk, didn't it? Uh, Turns out purple actually indicated horniness, which (laughs) is very funny. Mm -hmm. And also does tie into their immaturity, sort of confusing horniness for love at that point in their life. Mm Mm-hmm. And when Elliot wore it, the blue indicated peacefulness, he said, but he doesn't remember what color love actually was. I suspect it would be amber, based on the contextual (laughs) color theory happening here. It's not right for it to end like this, though, he says. If it's over, I'm going to come and be with you. And he risks it for love, an interesting departure from his movie-spanning emphasis on rationality. Uh, The wind whipping the branches around him, rippling at his shirt, staggering him. It's intensely powerful. And the other two approach him as well. And he takes her hand in what could be resignation, but also reads as defiance and a a recreation of their wedding as they demonstrate their love for each other after all by meeting and and taking this risk.
1: And I think a very nice like one of the the problems with these big disaster movies is that it always ends up having or not necessarily a problem but always ends up having to be like you want this ground level view of what it's like from just regular working people you don't want it necessarily to be a movie about like the president making decisions about a, a big disaster but then to up the movie stakes this regular person has to be like somehow pivotal to fixing the disaster in some way you know right they're the ones that have like, their kid has immunity to the disease, or, like, they have found the lab where it all takes place, whatever it might be. And in The Happening, they really do make it, like, they made a bunch of choices that led to their survival, but they had absolutely zero influence on <laughs> the plot of the events. Like, uh, the, the plot of the movie, the events of the movie, there is, like, the antagonist is not really aware of them in any, like, meaningful way. They had very little agency over everything, and it ends with them finally just acknowledging, like, there is really nothing we can do. We are not important (laughs) to to this plot. Like, we are... Like, many... Like, all of these characters are just, like, kind of... Like, the protagonist is probably the plants. They are the... That's the actual protagonist of the storyline. All of the human characters are just kind of, like, reacting to things, you know?
0: Definitely. Yeah, I, I really love that about it. You know, the, the time card shows up. It indicates that it's 6.58 a.m. They return to the house and wait things out. And I love that it is an acceptance of not understanding. They're no longer attempting to master nature, but instead surrendering to it. And this almost feels like what allows them to survive, that they're no longer predators to be fended off. It also seems possible to me in a, like, poetic, soothing the savage breast type way that the demonstration of the unreserved love ends the event, which <laughs> would lend some irony to the to the line, it must have ended before we went out there. You know, obviously that maybe is a little bit far, but it does feel a little night as well, sort of reminiscent of the line from The Village where William Hurt says, the world moves for love. It kneels before it in awe. So maybe I don't know.
1: And yeah. Knight is a softie, you know. Yeah. I think it's only. I think it's only kind of more recently, like like the visit and knock at the cabin, which get a lot more like cynical. Mm-hmm. And I would say old as well. But like you know, for the most part, like he's he's a big softy, which I love about him.
0: Definitely. Three months later, they're back in Philly. Schools are open again, and they're taking care of Jess, who says she loves Aunt Alma, and Aunt Alma returns the sentiment. Big step for these two, who have made it quite clear that they're not big on expressing emotions. But when you think things are about to end, you learn the value of clarity of feeling. And on the news, another doctor from the Department of Botanical Toxicology at the University of Chicago says, Aha! We found traces of the toxin in some plants. It was just like the red tide, only instead of the algae killing fish, it was on land. Plants can't pick up and move, so they have to rapidly evolve their chemistry. This was an act of nature, and they'll never fully understand it, but this doctor's theory as to why this happened only in the Northeast is that it was just a prelude, the first spot of the rash as the body acts to fight off the threat, and this is a warning. Um, The newsman pushes back. He says, oh, if it happened in another place, we could all believe you instead of thinking it was the government. (laughs) So, you know, people today refuse to heed the warnings of climate change. There is no resolution on a global scale. But on the micro scale, all you can do is sort of live your life with love and understanding that you are helpless in the face of nature. And that's what our couple do. Alma and Elliot have matured from their ordeal. They're ready for a baby. In fact, she's reading a positive pregnancy test. I think that it is sort of a nice ending for this couple in terms of like having not like a it is a happy ending for them, even as, as we'll talk about in a second, it becomes not a happy ending, but like, yeah, for the, for them to have individually matured, I think is nice to have that emotional arc.
1: Yeah. That he undercuts it a little is also very night where it's like, he recognizes that there's something kind of like silly and arbitrary about these structures we cling on to like a family structure, but those connections aren't Meaningless, like even if they are arbitrary, they're the ones we have. You know, they're the people we're around. Kind of the same, like Lady in the Waters, like the bonds that you have just from like people who live around you being kind of weird and intense, and you recognize that's sort of silly and arbitrary. Like I think that comes up a lot with him. Mm -hmm. He's willing to like admit that it is kind of silly. Like he doesn't think like this is some essential primordial structure that is just so imbued with meaning. But like. These are the structures we have. And of course you build human connections in those structures. Like these are the people you're around. So yeah, I like that he, you know, he can get sentimental, but he's willing to also have it sting a little too.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yeah. We go out on a scare. We get another scene in the park in France where the symptoms start up again and the wind picks up as the sky darkens all the way to black in the credits, baby. And the dark quickly gives way to some peaceful music, but very dark and roiling clouds seems more like enjoy love while you can because the end is near is the actual message. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is also a great shot at the end that further mirrors the beginning where the trees seem to be consuming the large buildings. So just, yeah, a, a nice way to go out. And now, Michael, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. Well, I'm going to let you start. That's a
1: you know, it's a big question and we've been singing its praises for a while, but coming back to it again and and again and again now, I think it's going to be really hard to make art or take in art where this sort of looming climate apocalypse isn't a part of it. You know, like it's like a weird time limit put on everyone's psyche and this i think was one of the best early examples of that you know i think there's been art made sense that's been really good about this stuff and art made sense has been really bad about this stuff but i think of this one as like one of the earlier ones to like really try to tackle it in a very direct way and i know some people would argue in like almost too obvious a way but i think you know if in 2008 it seemed a little too on the nose to have a premise that is climate change is making people kill themselves en masse. I think in 2023, that doesn't seem like uh, either too on the nose or too outlandish. It just sort of feels like a thing you might expect to read one day. Right. Like on the, the headline of a magazine is like, is climate change causing everyone to kill themselves? So I, I really, I just really think it's like a perfect horror premise. Yeah, some like truly upsetting and unsettling images. I. Understand some of the rap it gets, and the rap that M Night gets in general. But I think if you watch this and are willing to accept that, like this is a director with like a lot of things to say and a lot of idiosyncrasies, and just sort of like lean into that, the criticisms that people lob at it, like just just feel really silly. Like they just feel like tertiary things,
0: you know, right. like surface level.
1: Yeah, like if if someone criticized like a a david lynch movie for having stilted dialogue you'd be like well that's not that's not what the point of it is and um that kind of feels like the happening to me there's like things about its plot where you could be like try to break it down and be like well why would it happen this way and it's like well that's not the movie you're watching you know like uh so yeah just i'm just a big i'm a big m night fan and i think this might not be as like most technically accomplished but I think it's one of his most interesting, and I think just on an image-by-image image level has some of the most evocative ones he's made in his career.
0: Definitely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that that Lynch comparison was really great and spot-on. There is such an interesting blend of like farcical comedy and intensely graphic forced suicide. Not even forced suicide. Like we said, it's just removing the impetus for our own death drive. Like it it is so surreal in a way that is incredible to me. And and I think it is Knight's most surreal movie. Uh maybe maybe old. But, yeah, it's but
1: a, I mean that's what makes him so interesting. He has a career full of like pretty surreal movies.
0: Yeah. But. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And and I also think that it it is both of its time, and way ahead of its time, in that it is so tied into the sort of war on terror and the post nine eleven elements, but also those things that anxiety that we all feel. As you say, the climate change apocalypse looming—it's another attack on us that we have brought onto ourselves in in in, a, in many ways. And so, you know, I, I think that those anxieties still apply. When you extrapolate it to the climate change aspects of it as well,
1: I, I do wonder how it would be received if it was released today. Now that there is more of an appetite for stuff like this, like I know, you know, this was would have been made a few years after, like something like *Inconvenient Truth*. But I feel like the the discourse on climate change was still like, well, if we buy the right type of light bulbs, that that's all it'll take to change it. And now that people have a, a more fuller understanding of just how bad things are and how much change is required. It's like not going to be fixed by buying light bulbs or whatever. Right. If people would be a bit warmer to this movie, if it was just like all the rest of the con, like they're just seeing it in this new context. Yeah. Cause yeah, like I think it just, it has a fuller grasp of how huge and immeasurable we, we can barely, no human being can fully understand the scope of the changes that are
0: happening all around us right now. Exactly. My last point I think in the movie, Alma's whole thing is catastrophization, and that is sort of what the movie is too, right? It's clinging to the worst possible timeline where our killing the earth leads to it defending itself. It's very easy to feel that fear of everything going wrong. And the way we say, oh, the deer population needs to be culled for its own good during hunting season, why wouldn't the trees see us the same way? I just think that it is, as you say, a a, a perfect horror setup. It is capturing on very timely and very real elements while using fantastical parts of it to just tell a really, really fun story. And I think that that is what M. Night does so well time and time again. This is a perfect encapsulation of his career, especially because of the way that people disrespected it. Um, and, And that, to me, makes it the best horror movie ever made. (laughs) <laughs> Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Please tell the people where they can find you, where they can read your comics, all that jazz.
1: If you just Google my name, Michael DeForge, you should be able to find my my website and Instagram where most of my work is out. And yeah, last year I had a collection. Comics come out called Birds of Maine. And I'll have another comic out next year, but it hasn't been announced yet, so I can't say too much about it. But I can say it is a return to horror for me. So 2024. Yeah, that's next year 2024. (laughs) I will have some horror stuff that will you'll hopefully be able to see in a bookstore.
0: Awesome. Well, look forward to that, folks. And we'll definitely have to get you back for uh, for another app when it's a little closer and and you can talk more about it. But uh, really looking forward to that myself. Definitely encourage people to check out Michael's existing work, which is also very, very good. As far as my plugs. I'm on Instagram at little phl. I'm on letterbox at little horror phl But the main little horror PHL thing that you should be looking for is the Patreon, where you can find all kinds of bonus episodes about great things that aren't necessarily a horror movie, although we do sometimes just do bonus episodes about horror movies, but alternate media, like uh, we talked about The Last of Us Part 2 with Kevin Bartelt from The Flagrant Ones, who people might know. Branson Reese came on to talk about the top 13 best animated horror shorts, which was a really, really fun one. So yeah, lots of cool Patreon bonus episodes over there. I also encourage people to just go and check out the back catalog. I'm willing to say it. This is the number one horror podcast for comics fans. Because we have just had so many incredible comics artists on this show. Corinne Halbert was on talking about Possession. Jenna Cha was just on recently talking about Night of the Hunter. A smorgasbord of amazing artists in the back catalog. I highly encourage people to go back and check out those episodes. Also, plenty of M. Night movies. We talked about The Village and we talked about Signs on this show before. So, lots of great stuff. The two that tie most directly to this. Um, you know, go go listen to those zaps. And, and get the full experience. The listener drive is going well, so tell a friend about the show, and, and we're, we're looking like we just might make it to 100K by the end of the year, in which case there will be a 24-hour live stream on December 22nd, so people can stay tuned for more information about that. Check the social channels for that information. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.